Nutrition advice, it can be confusing for runners, cyclists, and triathletes. There's often a fire hose of information coming at you from general nutrition professionals, sports nutrition experts, and wellness gurus. And sometimes it can be hard to pick it all apart and work out what's relevant to athletes and what's not. So today we are going to have a look at some of those general nutrition messages that are widespread throughout the population. We're going to look at while they're sensible for the general population, in some cases they may actually be doing a disservice to runners, cyclists, and triathletes. So we'll have a look at where those messages come from, why it might not be the best advice for you, and what to do instead. Hello and welcome to The Long Munch, the nutrition podcast for runners, cyclists, and triathletes. I'm Alan McCubbin. And I'm Steph Gaskell. We're both accredited sports dietitians based in Melbourne and combined have over 30 years experience working with runners, cyclists and triathletes to help them stay healthy and optimise their performance, whether they're complete beginners or professional and Olympic athletes. Each episode, we take a deep dive into the most common nutrition questions that runners, cyclists and triathletes ask, sort of stuff that people are talking about in the coffee shop, out on their run or ride or jumping on Google to find answers for. So we'll take that question break it down and invite a guest expert or athlete or coach to add their perspective as well. Today it is episode 64a, what nutrition advice for the general population doesn't apply to athletes. But before we get into that, Steph, how are you going this week? I'm going good, Al. I'm going good. I'm living over in a farm in what at the moment, people would probably say, in, in Gembrook and we have four dogs following us around in every single room that we go to but no it's it's really lovely over here it's really nice and quiet so I'm enjoying that aspect and yeah otherwise just ticking ticking along and enjoying a bit of the warmer weather actually at the moment a bit of sunshine which is nice Spring has sprung, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what about you? I've seen that you've been going into the lab a little bit lately. Yeah, yeah. So that hydration study we've spoken about in the last few episodes of the podcast is in full swing. So we've had, I think, three participants do their first visit now. One of them's finished the study and we've got a few more coming. Bit of a break over the next couple of weeks with school holidays. Just it's difficult to get into the lab when you've got kids stuck at home. But yeah, once that's over, we'll be back in there and trying to get it finished off, which would be good. Awesome. Awesome. And if you do have a question, we would actually love to help answer that on the podcast. So you can find us on social media at the Long Munch Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. So please, yeah, shoot through some of those nagging questions that you or perhaps your training partners may have. Otherwise, Al, today's episode? Yeah, yeah, today's episode, as I said before, what nutrition advice for the general population doesn't apply to athletes? And this was a question that we actually had come through from a listener, Sean Dunn, who suggested we have a look at this topic when he started to think about, I guess, some of the advice that was coming through his way around nutrition and then, I guess, how that sort of maybe contrasted with some of the stuff that he sort of learnt about previously in terms of general nutrition information. So he was keen to sort of get our take on on all of that. So no guest today. We're just going to go through, we've sort of made a bit of a list, Steph, of some of the common things that we think fit this mould, and then we'll go through them and, and have a look at, I guess, where they may differ for athletes compared to the general population. Awesome. 
All right, well, let's get stuck straight into it, Steph. And the first question I'm going to handball to you, and this is, uh, I guess, a, a bit of a advice that you often see in the media, maybe not necessarily in official dietary guidelines, but certainly widely circulated amongst nutrition professionals and, and in the media and on social media and so on. And that's about, I guess, intuitive or mindful eating and trusting your appetite that'll kind of guide you to where you need to go in terms of how much you're eating and what you're eating and that kind of thing. What do you think about that in the context of runners, cyclists and triathletes? Should they be just listening to their appetite and eating according to that? Or do they need to sometimes think, hmm, okay, maybe my needs are different to what my body is telling me? Yeah. So, I mean, if I did that when I was running the distances that I I was doing, I, I think I would be lagging on my energy intake needs for sure and I'm, I'm sure that many of us know that we can kind of finish one of our workout sessions and sometimes we're absolutely starving and we're famished and then there's other times where we probably have no real appetite at all so it can really vary and I guess we know that exercise really does have that ability to both kind of increase or actually decrease our appetite. And that can really also depend on the type of training that we may be doing. It can vary depending on, you know, physiology and also our current diet. But we know that there's kind of several hormones that can regulate our hunger, appetite and digestion. And the main ones that I'm sure some of us have probably heard of are leptin. And this one tends to tell our brain to decrease hunger. And then we've got ghrelin, which tells the brain to increase hunger. And so I guess there's some research in this area which has found that when we may do really intense exercise or even perhaps really strenuous long-duration exercise, so it might be when we're out, you know, running for four or five hours and and maybe that's kind of a moderate intensity, that actually suggests that our hunger can be reduced after that session. And they've found that perhaps what can happen there is that hormone ghrelin, which is that hunger hormone, may actually be suppressed. And then I guess if we look at other types of exercise, if it's more kind of low-moderate, we might find that that actually doesn't have any real effect on our on suppressing our hunger maybe that type of exercise could perhaps make us feel you know a bit more hungry or or we tend to have a bit more of an appetite there's been some work in in strength exercise and with strength it, it may be that it can actually increase our 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 hunger and our appetite and now you've said and I've found that myself is when I go to the pool and do a swim, which isn't often, but, you know, I tend to find my, my appetite, my hunger levels are actually quite, quite high. Yeah, the triathletes will definitely relate to that. Yeah. And then the other one that's, that's really interesting that we were talking about, Al, was that, you know, sometimes when we do some long training sessions and where we're not actually fueling ourselves all that well during the session so you know we're, we're not getting in a heap of, of fuel often what you might find is then after that session you you really do struggle to have uh, an appetite and you, you don't have much hunger 
And, you know, whether that is because it is changing those hunger hormones and the hormones, you know, involved in, you know, digestion and absorption that are, that are released in the small intestine, I'm not sure. What are your thoughts out? Yeah, I, I don't think it's really clear in, in terms of the, the scientific literature why that might be the case. I, I think, you know, if you were to have an educated guess, you know, we've talked on this podcast before about the fact that when you exercise and you don't consume much in the way of nutrients during exercise, you get a lack of blood flow to the gut during exercise. And that can do a couple of things. One is it probably downregulates all of the digestive enzymes and things like that associated with digesting food because there's nothing there to digest. And so whether that has a flow-on effect to some of those satiety hormones as well, uh, that that could possibly be a reason. And the other reason, potentially more for, I guess, the really long-duration stuff and particularly in hot weather, is that lack of blood flow, as we know, can increase the, the damage to the cells lining the gastrointestinal tract and getting things going into the bloodstream that shouldn't be there, that sort of endotoxemia, which is not usually to a severe extent that it causes, you know, like a medical issue, but it can be just to the extent that it does cause a little bit of nausea or just a bit of, you know, feeling not quite right. And that might obviously knock off someone's appetite a bit as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And the the other one, Al, that can often be confused with, with messages to the general pop and then, you know, athletes are wondering whether it relates to them is the advice to eat all kind of whole grains and, and higher fibre options because, you know, it's, it's, it's good for our health. But how should athletes kind of interpret that message? Yeah, and this obviously relates to that appetite side of things as well, doesn't it? Because, you know, if you're someone who's maybe struggling, you know, you just don't feel that hungry compared to the amount of energy your body is demanding, then having, you know, brown rice and wholemeal pasta this and whole grain bread that that's only going to make things even more difficult because you're going to fill up even more on fiber and increase that satiety even further so i guess that's the first potential downside of having sort of all sort of whole grain and wholemeal higher fiber options is that it is going to make you feel more full which if we think about messages for the general population it's usually around sort of issues of diseases of overconsumption of food and relative to you know physical activity and so we're talking about overweight obesity type 2 diabetes heart disease all of these sorts of things and of course in those situations we're trying to probably come up with strategies that can help people you know reduce the amount of energy they're consuming because there's a tendency to overconsume across the general population so of course in that situation your brown rices your whole grain breads and all those things are going to be helpful and also remembering that probably the quantities of these types of foods, these grain-based foods, they're going to consume less of them. And so to get you know the required amount of fiber in the day, you need to eat higher fiber versions of these products to actually get enough fiber in your diet over the day to get the health benefits of that fiber. Whereas if you've got someone who's going out there and eating huge quantities of pasta and rice and bread and things like that because of their training volume, if they eat all whole grain, high fiber versions of those foods, their fiber intake, and we've talked to, you know, about this on a previous podcast, can be absolutely enormous. And then that can cause problems, not only in terms of just feeling full all the time and struggling to actually get enough calories to meet your needs. And we've talked about the dangers of sort of underfueling and that low energy availability, but also just the fact that at that higher fiber intake, 
one, you know, risk of gut issues in training, possibly when you've got those large fiber intakes and just gut discomfort in general. But also the fact that when you have really high fiber intakes, you can actually start to impair the absorption of certain nutrients from food that you actually need, particularly some of the minerals. And so you may start to find that you actually need more of those minerals then to actually meet your dietary requirements because they're not all being completely absorbed because of this high fiber intake. And I know, Steph, we've both seen examples of athletes, you know, the, the recommended dietary intake for fiber is sort of 25 to 30 grams a day, depending on if you're male or female. But we've seen athletes, particularly vegetarian and vegan athletes, but not not exclusively, that could be eating well over 50 or sometimes even over 60 grams of fiber a day. So literally double the recommended dietary intake. And that's very unusual in the general population, but very possible in an athletic population where you have very high energy needs. People are just eating a lot of food because they're doing a lot of training. And so that can come back to, to bite them in a negative way. So yeah, definitely that sort of relates into that appetite side of things, but also on the, the gut side of things as well. Yep. 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 So yeah, I mean, we're, we're definitely not saying don't consume foods that, you know, contain fiber and contain added fiber. About you know, as we always mention, it's about periodizing those nutrition strategies and and considering yeah what type of training we have, what type of training session we have, and then where you know the foods that that do contain the extra fiber, and obviously then what will normally come with that is the extra nutrition. You know when we should be consuming that and how we can balance that with some of those options that we may actually need, being those more refined options to help fuel our our energy needs and our training sessions yeah and i think like for people that have a really high training load and they're probably eating large quantities of sort of cereal and grain-based foods that obviously becomes more important because you're eating more of those foods so you probably need to choose lower fiber versions of those foods so you don't overdo the fiber but for someone who's only got a small training load maybe less than sort of eight at ten hours a week or something like that they're not eating those massive quantities of those foods, not such an issue. And, you know, probably their intake of cereal and grain foods is not that much different to the sort of the general population. And therefore, you know, the, the higher fiber, you know, more whole grain options may be more appropriate in those cases. Or if there's a period where you're taking a break from training or you're injured or something like that, again, obviously, you know, the, the quantity of those foods will probably go down quite a bit and so the less of those foods you're having the more important probably the whole grain varieties is and the, the more of those foods you're eating in the day obviously the more that's going to be a struggle and the more you're at risk of overdoing the fiber yeah and then the other you know scenario that relates to to the athletes endurance athletes is when they may be implementing something like kind of a carbohydrate loading plan to, you know in their their event obviously <laughs> shooting for really high fibrous food yep. is not going to probably create a fun situation for them during the event and they'll be very likely struggling to get in the amount of carbohydrate that we actually need to be able to super saturate our muscles with carbohydrate. So, yeah, in that situation as well, they'd be tending to need to decrease that that fibre load. Mm. Yep, definitely. So with discretionary foods we often you know are told the general pop particularly that we should really minimize our intake of of foods that 
you know, are discretionary. So, you know, uh, a convenience type of, of foods, foods that have added sugar and foods that have lower fiber. And this one, we often see our be very much confused in athletes because as athletes, obviously, we are, you know, doing sport and exercise often because, you know, it's good for us, it's healthy for us. And so that comes with wanting to eat, you know, really a good diet and something that is healthy for us. So then we think, oh, no, consuming food that has some sugar or doesn't have much fiber, how could we eat that? That's not good. That's not good for our body. So what's the message on that one? Yeah, so discretionary foods, as you said, Steph, are really, and this is a term that's in the Australian Guide to Healthy Eating, so I'm not sure if it's used in other countries, but just to describe it, if you're not familiar, we have here in Australia our dietary guidelines and our food guide. You know, some countries have a plate model like America. Some people have a, a pyramid model. What, whatever it is, you've got kind of your core food groups that sit within that. So fruits, vegetables, so cereals and grain-based foods, meat, fish, chicken, and plant-based alternatives, and then sort of the dairy products and plant-based alternatives. And then you might have like cooking oils and things kind of sits in or outside that model, depending on the country. So they're kind of all the, the core food groups and the things that you know, a certain amount of each one is recommended to meet all your nutrient needs because they're the foods that you're going to get your, your main nutrients from. So protein, fat, carbohydrate, but then also all of the vitamins and minerals and things as well discretionary foods are kind of the things that sit outside that and I guess most people would think of this as quote-unquote processed foods or refined foods or things like that they're generally going to be packaged foods they're generally going to be things that are maybe higher in calories lower in vitamins and minerals and fiber and things like that and this can include things that have a lot of either added sugar salt fat alcohol potentially as well I guess junk food can kind of fit in that if you want to call it that. So there's a whole range of different ways that you can kind of look at this, but I think everyone kind of has a picture of what that that would look like. Now, I guess the issue here with discretionary foods is, as you said, Steph, you know, a lot of people going to exercise around the whole idea of a healthy lifestyle. And particularly if you're on Instagram, there's a real, I guess, idea or picture of what that looks like in the eyes of the public through wellness people whether they're elite athletes or not and I think this is one that that both of us see a lot with athletes is that they're really wedded to this idea of oh I don't eat that food that's poison that's terrible that's junk that's rubbish that's you know that's not clean eating what you know whatever terminology people use they're really wedded to this fact that they can only eat you know kind of from the core food groups and and certainly for the majority of the public they don't eat enough of the core food groups and that makes perfect sense. But certainly when you start to do big volumes of training, if you're reliant purely on the core food groups, you can start to run into trouble at the higher end in terms of training volume. So once you're looking up probably, you know, at least beyond 10 hours, probably even beyond 15 hours a week. So a lot of triathletes, for example, doing long course and certainly professional and Olympic athletes would find this is it does get harder and harder and harder to actually meet your carbohydrate needs, your total calorie needs to avoid that sort of low energy availability and the, the energy deficiency issues that we've talked about on the podcast before if you aren't supplementing your diet with discretionary food. So I guess that's the, the key here is we think about it as supplementing. So we're not saying, you know, you should get all your food from discretionary foods. I guess what we're saying is, you know, you do still need your core food groups to get all your vitamins and minerals and things like that. 
It's absolutely fine. But when you have very, very high energy needs, very, very high carbohydrate needs, it is going to be increasingly difficult to do that from the core food groups alone without relying on discretionary foods because discretionary foods are generally going to be, as you said, lower fiber, which comes back to our last point. They're going to pack more carbohydrate or more calories into a smaller amount of food and often in a form that's more convenient as well. So it means you can take it with you when you're on the go from work to training to wherever or school to training for younger athletes maybe. And so you are going to be more reliant on that convenience for that you know, easily packaged non-perishable forms of energy and carbohydrate to top up and meet your demands, particularly if you do have either you're on the go or as you said before, Steph, you know, you've got poor appetite and you actually need to get more in despite not having much of an appetite, these foods are going to be much easier to to get in in those situations. So it is one thing I think both of us find does take a little bit of work with with some athletes that we work with is trying to get them to realize that, hey, it is okay to eat some discretionary food. You're not going to suddenly get diabetes from eating discretionary food if you train 20 hours a week. And in fact, if anything, it may actually improve your health because it's going to stop you going into that low energy availability and all the negative consequences of not getting enough calories or enough carbohydrate in relative to your training load. So it's certainly not saying you should eat you know, exist on a completely discretionary food diet, but simply that those foods may be an important part of your overall diet to actually meet your needs when you're doing a lot of training. Yeah, and I think the other thing that, you know, athletes need to consider as well is that when they're consuming, you know, foods that have the added sugar, so the carbohydrate, and if we're consuming that during exercise, Sometimes they freak out and they say, oh, like I'll be, you know, having these real high glucose and massive insulin spikes. And there's actually little or no insulin or glucose spike when we're consuming that during exercise. And actually during quite intense exercise, insulin may actually even decrease despite us consuming glucose. And the other thing is that athletes that, you know, are consuming even you know sugar regularly and and in larger amounts than the ge- general population they actually are more insulin sensitive they're not less insulin sensitive despite them you know consuming glucose and perhaps having some some spikes these spikes what we say are only transient and the the kind of the glucose spikes and the insulin spikes that we are more concerned about is if that's over a chronic period, that's where we need to be concerned. And then in terms of, you know, sugar being bad for our health, it's more so when sugar is in excess and it's more that our total energy intake is then in excess when that is leading to to health concerns and, and health problems. So, you know, glucose responses during exercise are quite, complex there's lots of factors that that influence that but yeah don't don't be concerned that you know if you're consuming this sugar during your your exercise that you're going to be having these massive spikes and that's going to be contributing to you know poor health your your muscles are going to be soaking that up and absorbing that for fuel and like you said if you're not getting that in then you're probably not meeting your energy needs 
Yeah, and I think like if you take that to the extreme, and and I think we both have seen examples of this where people are so reluctant to consume any discretionary foods because it's quote unquote unhealthy, and I don't put that crap in my body quote unquote, is that they'll then try and you know race on whole foods, you know bananas and sandwiches and things like that, and you know try and run a sub three hour marathon on sandwiches and bananas and things, or you know. 70.3 triathlon or something it's just not going to work there might be the, the occasional person who can make it work for them who can get their gut adapt to the to that you know type of food but i would say 95 plus percent people that would be disastrous they're just not going to be able to fuel enough to optimize their performance or they're going to get major major gut issues by attempting to do that they'll probably do a sub one minute to the toilet <laughs> mm. yeah yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And what happens then often I find, I think people that follow that, because they can't figure out how to fuel enough, they then turn towards sort of low carb, high fat diets because they feel that that's a way that they can eat whole foods and, and still, you know, do their, their event. And I mean, you could do that, but, you know, as we've talked about right back in episode 1A, our very first episode of this podcast, if you if your event has any kind of high intensity efforts in it, you're probably leaving performance on the table by going down that path. Yep. Yep. Well said. Yep. Cool. All right. So our next question or our next bit of advice, I guess, for the general population that may not be quite as it seems for an athletic population is recommendations for protein intake, Steph. So the recommended dietary intakes, RDI, we call it here in Australia. Other countries use RDA. But for protein, I think in most countries it's pretty similar. Depending on age and, and sex, it's anywhere from sort of 0.8 to 1 or just over 1.0 grams per kilo per day of protein. And that's kind of the recommendation. But, you know, we've heard a lot and we see in sports nutrition recommendations that usually for athletes it's recommended that they have quite a bit more protein than that. Yeah, yep, yep. And I guess we just need to consider, yeah, with the athletes, the, the exercise that, that they're doing. And then particularly for endurance athletes, our we, you know, we spoke about how, you know, usually we won't want to use protein as a fuel for, for energy um, because we want to be using that for uh, our recovery hair process. That you know, in really long duration exercise, we will still use a small fraction of the protein for our fuel. So this points to athletes actually, you know, needing a higher intake of protein per kilo of body mass, and and you can see variations in terms of how much that may be for an endurance athlete. Perhaps it sits at around 1.6 to 1.8 grams per kilo of, of body mass for athletes. Sometimes this will change depending on the actual goals for an athlete. If they're needing to manipulate body composition, then there's been some research that suggests in those situations going a little bit higher, even for protein, may be beneficial to, to help promote those body composition changes. And we tend to not just think about our protein as just, you know, a total amount, just, just get this total amount during the day because for athletes, as we, we know, we can have, you know, multiple perhaps training sessions during the day as well and we're wanting to, to try and promote some of those training adaptations that we, that we get. So 
Research tends to suggest that trying to get protein distributed throughout the day can be beneficial. So, you know, and again, it tends to be that we say more around perhaps around the point three, let's go, point three grams per kilo of body mass in a meal can can perhaps be beneficial. So for athletes, that may mean that they're actually consuming that amount perhaps, you know, four times in the day or maybe even five. And so, you know, they're trying to get potentially around that 20 to 30 grams of good quality type of protein in the um, meals to, to help promote those training, I guess, adaptations and that repair process. So, yeah, more so making sure we're good at distributing that throughout the day and not just leaving that whole heap as we can tend to do in a westernised diet, you know, in the evening meal. So we sit down to perhaps a chunky bit of meat and that's where we can get a large amount of our protein and sometimes we don't do a fantastic job at getting it during, you know, particularly at breakfast. Sometimes we we find people kind of pull down there. Maybe that's because and particularly for recreational athletes and not professional athletes, they're trying to do that balance of fitting in all the exercise and then rushing off to work. So, you know, often in the morning we fit in, we prioritise fitting in our training session and we don't always prioritise the, the nutrition there or we go for the easier, more convenient option for breakfast and that probably is something like some toast with Vegemite maybe for Aussies over here. Other people in the US will probably range with me saying Vegemite or the UK athletes would. But yeah, you know, if we're if we're having that, then we're really lacking the the protein that we need. So yeah, so we athletes do do tend to need a, a higher amount of of protein than the general population. And the other thing is, typically we do get a good amount of protein. Depends, you know, if perhaps we're vegetarian and vegan and we're not as focused on our various protein sources maybe you're falling down then but I'm not saying at all that vegetarians and vegans cannot meet their protein requirements they most certainly can but yeah what do you think on on that one now what are your interpretations yeah yeah like I think that that pretty well covers the majority of it I mean there has been discussion by a lot of the people that are very prominent in this area of research around protein not just in the context of athletes, but in the context of the general population and particularly the aging population, that in fact, you know, there's been a lot of suggestion that in fact those RDIs or RDAs for protein should be higher, even for the general population, let alone for athletes, that it should be at least sort of 1.2 to 1.4 grams per kilo per day. And it comes back to the fact that the RDIs or RDAs are really designed with the goal in mind of preventing a deficiency or preventing disease, as opposed to, you know, what has been suggested is that a higher protein intake is not necessarily about preventing a protein deficiency, quote unquote, but more around optimizing function. And actually, you get better outcomes in terms of physical function as we get older with a higher protein intake. It's certainly not harmful at those levels. And whether you're an athlete or not, you could probably benefit from a higher protein intake. 
And then, you know, when you add in the training, as you said, particularly endurance training, where you can actually use some of that protein as a fuel source during exercise as well, that becomes even more important. And if you want to have a a bit of a deeper dive into that, you can go back and listen to episode 19A with Professor Dan Moore from the University of Toronto, who does a lot of that sort of research around protein needs of endurance athletes. And he specifically spoke about that on that, that podcast of, you know, do I need more protein? And as you just mentioned, in terms of animal versus plant protein, we had a recent episode on that, actually, episode 60 with Dr. Alistair Montaigne, where we looked at that question, is animal protein superior to plant protein? And the conclusion from that, to cut a long story short, was in in the majority of cases, probably no. You know, we used to think 10 or 15 years ago that that was the case, but as research has caught up, we're realizing more and more that actually there isn't nearly as much difference between animal and plant protein in terms of the effect on actual outcomes of people in terms of body composition or performance as maybe we thought, you know, 10 or 15 years ago based on sort of theoretical studies and looking at specific sources of those proteins. And often you you see in our population dietary guidelines and, and recommendations where we're recommending our macronutrient requirements based on a percentage of energy intake to to guide that intake and sometimes we refer to that as what we call as AMDRs which refers to acceptable macronutrient distribution ranges so you know with protein we might see that being as 15 to to 20 or 25 percent energy intake fats can be perhaps 20 to 30 percent energy intake and then carbohydrates can tend to make up that remainder of of the energy intake what are your thoughts on using that for athletes because we don't often refer to and give advice to athletes in terms of percentage energy intake do we no and this is again i think an area that does get confusing for some athletes i do get people come to see me and they say oh you know what percentage should be from fat versus carbohydrate versus protein or I'm eating a, you know, this whatever split of, you know, fat, carbohydrate, protein. And and yeah, you're right. That comes from general guidelines for the general population. But if you go and look into the sports nutrition guidelines, you don't see these numbers used at all. And the, the numbers that are used are in grams per kilo per day of protein, as we just discussed, and of carbohydrate as well. And the reason that they're not done in percentage terms is because, you know, a lot of this stuff will vary and and with training, your energy needs scale up and down quite dramatically in some cases. You know, you can imagine like a runner, for example, may do a, a big, you know, two or three hour run on a weekend day and then not do any exercise at all the next day or just a light, you know, half hour easy jog or something. And so energy needs are obviously going to be dramatically different. But in that situation, actually, the protein needs aren't really different because you're still recovering. And that that process of, you know, building and repairing proteins within the body is, is constant. So now you've got a situation where your energy needs and your carbohydrate needs to fuel the training are going up and down like a yo-yo, but the protein needs are staying fairly constant. So how would you define that in terms of percentage terms? Because now you've got a one day where, you know, protein because you've got such a high energy and carbohydrate need, protein might only be 5% of total energy intake. But on the next day, where you've got a very low energy and carbohydrate need, protein might jump up to 30% of your 
total energy intake because actually your, your energy needs are quite low on that particular day. And so if you were to sort of do it in percentage terms on that big day where you've got to fuel a lot with carbohydrate, if you were you know, sticking strictly to that percentage terms and saying, oh, I need to get, you know, 20% of my energy from protein, all of a sudden you'd be eating like, you know, two and a half, three grams per kilo of protein that day simply for the sake of sticking to the percentage number because my calorie needs are so high. But of course, it doesn't work like that. It's unnecessary. It would make you feel so full and uncomfortable. You'd probably get gut issues on your long run and you'd just struggle to get in the, the amount of carbohydrate that you actually need. So with protein, our needs actually stay fairly consistent day to day, but our carbohydrate and our total energy needs go up and down dramatically across the week, depending on what we're doing from a training point of view. So because we have this kind of periodization going on, it would be completely nonsensical to try and stick to these sort of macronutrient ranges in terms of percentages. Maybe you could think about that as like an average across the week, but to me, it doesn't really make any sense and there's no need to do it. You know, we have a specific carbohydrate need based on the amount of exercise we're doing and that's going to be based on the number of grams not as a percentage of the calories and so that that's one situation and I guess the other one I would sort of use as an example might be just as you said before Steph that there are certain situations where someone's protein requirements may actually increase and that might be for example in a period where they are in a moderate energy deficit to try and reduce body fat. So here's a situation where your calorie intake has gone down, but your protein needs to preserve muscle mass have actually gone up. So this is a situation where, again, if you were doing it in percentage terms, if you're reducing the calories for weight loss or body fat loss, in percentage terms, you'd actually be reducing your protein intake because it's now a percentage of a smaller number. But in fact, your protein needs are actually greater. So you're going to shift that whole percentage up quite significantly. So yeah, for, for me, these percentage numbers are nonsensical for athletes. I don't even think they're that fantastic for the general population, but they probably do because the needs don't change that much day to day, week to week. But certainly for, for athletes doing significant amount of endurance training, it, it just doesn't make sense to do it that way. Yep, exactly. And and yeah, those those guidelines that we use are, are much more specific to the actual fuel needs of the of the muscle. And in actual fact, they're more user friendly as well. So, you know, for any for example, the athlete can be provided with a range of, of daily carbohydrate intakes that, that might be considered suitable. And then they can actually use, you know, food composition information. Obviously, we've got the multitude of apps that, that we can use, ready retinas of, of carbohydrate content of food. And they can use that to kind of more easily plan or, you know, assess the kind of food intake for the particular um, training day. And, you know, I guess, again, we should highlight there that carbohydrate intake recommendations we we often can give in terms of ranges and the range can be quite generous and that's to allow for that kind of variation in fuel needs among individuals and depending on their actual workload and and training requirements so but I, I think well said for that. And I can understand why it's athletes do get confused in terms of, you know, do we talk in terms of macronutrients in terms of from an energy percentage or grams per kilo? And that's because 
often even in certain position statements that even, you know, if you're reading articles in the internet, you do get that varied advice. And even with sports nutrition products as well or companies, they can talk about it as a, as a ratio. So, so, yeah, it's understandable that, that you get confusing that you get confused but we would recommend that it's it's more practical to to think in terms of expressing it per kilo of of body mass Uh, yeah and al i'm i'm interested in your thoughts on this one because you're known as the sodium guy at least in the sports nutrition world what do you what are your thoughts on the advice for athletes to reduce or minimize their salt or sodium intake yeah i guess this is another sort of common bit of general nutrition advice and there's you know there's good reason for that because if you have a very high salt or sodium intake it can increase your risk of high blood pressure now not everyone gets high blood pressure in response to sodium intake we can sort of divide the population into what we call salt sensitive so they are people whose blood pressure will respond to changes in the amount of salt in their diet and we've got salt resistant people so people where you change the amount of salt in their diet and it makes no difference to their blood pressure we don't really have a full understanding of why that is the case but it seems that about one third of the population is salt resistant so it doesn't make a difference and about two thirds are salt resistant so it will will make a difference there i guess in terms of you know sodium or salt intake and athletes particularly endurance athletes Look, I think, you know, we've talked about this before on the podcast in terms of the actual sodium needs of endurance athletes and maybe that they've been probably overstated in the past. I don't think necessarily there are massive needs. There are times where probably replacing sodium during exercise and understanding what your sweat sodium losses are and replacing a certain amount of that may be useful and it's probably more around the ultra endurance type exercise certainly not day-to-day in training and and for probably exercise of less than about four hours it's really not going to make much difference that said you know if having salt in food either encourages you to eat more encourages you to drink more and and you know optimize hydration around training or during training it's not necessarily a, a problem for an endurance athlete because you know high blood pressure and the response of that to salt we don't have a full understanding of it. We know that probably the traditional textbook model is is incomplete, but we don't really know completely what that final bit of it is. But we do know that your athletes generally are not going to have issues with high blood pressure anyway, unless there's a you know an underlying genetic reason for that. And in that case, yeah, maybe fair enough. You know, that advice to reduce salt might be not a bad idea. But we know that you know, the amount of salt that you lose in your sweat is going to reflect the amount of salt in your diet. And so if you have a very high salt diet, you know, normally if you're not doing exercise, your kidneys will try and get rid of the excess, but too much and and it can lead to high blood pressure. But in the case of athletes, they're going to lose a lot of that excess salt salt in their sweat. And so, you know, as well as the kidneys, but particularly in, in the sweat. And so it doesn't seem to be that it's probably much of an issue in athletes. Now, that's not to go out and say you should deliberately go out and put salt on all your food and and eat heaps of it or that you need to replace 100% of your sweat sodium losses. You absolutely don't. And we've talked about that previously on the podcast. But I think certainly you probably don't have to be as prudent, I guess, with salt or as vigilant with it as as maybe someone who doesn't do any exercise. And you probably don't need to, to worry so much about it or stress about it quite as much because your you sweat glands and your kidneys are going to 
take care of that in most cases. And the exercise itself is going to be beneficial in terms of reducing your risk of high blood pressure. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, athletes potentially, like you said, it's not to say that athletes are needing to go out and add, you know, a mountainous amount of salt to, to their food. And also probably because they potentially are consuming some extra discretionary foods that may have the the added salt in them anyway so yeah that's kind of helping meet the salt needs or cravings anyway yeah 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 and if you want to find out more about that we did a whole episode around sodium intake during exercise specifically back in episode 47a all right i've got one for you now steph and this is another common one that you see in, I guess, the general population nutrition messages that are out there or common beliefs that people have around nutrition. And that's, I guess, around the use of dietary supplements. And you, you often hear that line of, oh, supplements, they are unnecessary. They're just a waste of, you know, it's just expensive urine. You know, if you're taking dietary supplements and, you know, no one needs supplements, you just need a well-balanced diet, that kind of thing. Is there truth to that? And does that need to change for runners, cyclists, and triathletes? Do they need to maybe think that take that advice with a grain of salt? Mm. Yep. So I don't think we can make that broad statement that supplements are unnecessary for everyone if you have a well-balanced diet. And we spoke to Greg Shaw. I cannot recall the episode for that now, but maybe you can help me out with that one in terms of, you know, supplements can help optimize an an athlete's diet it's just about you know assessing what supplement what's the the purpose of that that supplement and is it needed for that particular athlete and maybe it's needed in certain situations for an athlete so I guess you know if we talk about or just look at a particular type of dietary supplement that may be commonly used for, for athletes and may be needed at times for athletes would be iron and as we know particularly athletes and endurance athletes they can sometimes struggle to actually meet their requirements for iron because the the recommended dietary intake for iron is actually quite quite high and so it can be difficult to to meet their requirements for for that and sometimes we do see that athletes have low iron levels or are iron deficient and they therefore may need to supplement with iron to help meet the high demands for that. And particularly then even in particular exercise situations, so let's say you're an endurance athlete and you are wanting to go and do some altitude altitude training. Well, we know that actually consuming some iron leading up to that altitude training camp can actually be, be beneficial for you to help maximize your your training adaptations for that as well so I guess that's that's one example there from a diet supplement perspective and then we also have to consider I guess the ergenic aids and supplements like caffeine as as an example that we know do influence an improvement in endurance exercise and and sport so you know if you're an athlete and you are wanting to be competitive and you are wanting to get the extra edge over over others, then, you know, caffeine 
we know can potentially help improve your your performance by by a certain amount. So it can be beneficial in that regard as well. What are your thoughts out on those types of supplements and and athletes using supplements do you think no you shouldn't use it because you're going to risk it being contaminated then you could get a doping violation yeah yeah obviously it's a a tricky area to navigate sometimes and to understand that but I guess if we think about you know why why use supplements and I think you know that episode with Greg Shaw that you mentioned is episode 34a and that's a really good one because I think Greg has a really good take on you know why you might want to use supplements or consider them and under what circumstances and how do you decide what kind of supplements might be relevant to you and and a lot of it as he talks about is kind of what what he calls sort of nutrient optimization so I guess it's coming back to that point that we talked about earlier when we talked about protein is that our kind of basic needs for for nutrients whether it's the macronutrients protein fat carbohydrate or the micronutrients vitamins and minerals or some of those non-nutritive um, components of food as well uh, are all around i guess trying to prevent disease and trying to maintain health in the general population because that's what dietary guidelines are designed for but that's not to say that we could optimize either our general function or our sport specific performance by optimizing the amount of some of those nutrients in the body. And sometimes that's relatively unrealistic to do with whole foods. You know, creatine was an example that Greg used. You know, nitrate is another example. And so there are quite a few different examples that, that may or may not be relevant to your situation. And, and we talk about that in that episode. But there might be situations where, yes, actually supplements will help optimize physical function in general, even in the general population outside of exercise or sport specific performance. So that's a really good episode with Greg to go back and have a listen to. And on the anti-doping side of things, the follow-up episode to that 34B with triathlete Emma Jeffcoat really talks about that and and the context or, or the way that she approaches sort of the supplements around that as well. And I guess the other thing is that there are times where you do large volumes of training. It's not just about meeting those general requirements. It's about the fact that you have increased requirements compared to normal. And you mentioned iron there, Steph. If people are interested, you can go back and listen to episode 8A with Professor Peter Peeling, where he talks about, you know, do I need iron supplements in the context of endurance athletes? And I guess most recently, our very last episode, which was around vitamin D supplementation and the fact that the majority of people are simply not going to get adequate vitamin D throughout the winter months. And if you want to maintain a normal vitamin D status, you're probably going to have to supplement in a lot of parts of the world. And so... Again, that's another example of supplements. So that's episode 63 with Dr. Dan Owens, if people are interested in that. So there's definitely times where supplements uh, can provide um, something useful for people, both from a a general health point of view, but also a performance-specific point of view, and and not in the way of sort of, oh, is that, you know, borderline of doping or anything like that, but just simply around optimizing those those nutrient stores where it's going to be very difficult or in some cases like vitamin D impossible to do from the, the normal sources without supplementation in, in certain circumstances. All right, let's get into our final one now, Steph, and this is one that you'd picked out based on the Australian Dietary Guidelines, but I think every country has a guideline that sounds very similar to this or is worded kind of similarly to this and that is you know our our general dietary guideline of enjoy a wide variety of nutritious foods from the five core food groups which we mentioned earlier every day why is this maybe 
something that athletes need to be mindful of and maybe not follow to the T. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Prime example that we spoke about before our is, and particularly in endurance athletes, if we are, you know, preparing for a, a long duration event, they may be trying to supercompensate their muscle glycogen stores. So they may be there for trying to really increase their daily uh, carbohydrate intake for at least maybe a 24 to 36 hour period prior to that event. So as we've already mentioned, if we are trying to do that and we're also trying to get in the five main food groups and make sure that, you know, we're also getting in all the protein that, you know, from the meat, meat alternative group, the, the dairy, et cetera, some, some individuals may really struggle with, you know, getting that carbohydrate intake goal that, that they're trying to, to get in. Also, perhaps it might include foods that may not always sit that well for them, you know, just prior to to a massive event. So a prime example of that is, you know, foods that may be high in lactose may not always sit that well for individuals prior to their event and particularly also foods that they have a high FODMAP content for athletes that are at more of a, a risk for experiencing gastrointestinal symptoms during exercise, they may benefit from reducing the load in that 24-hour period leading up to a, a event. So that's just one, one example. But we just need to also consider that it is not absolutely every single day that you have to get, you know, those five main food groups religiously. You know, if you miss some days, that doesn't mean that you're not going to be meeting your nutrient requirements and recommendations for your your health needs. So, yeah, I think just be, be we need to be flexible in in our approach. And so, I'm not saying it's not important for athletes to consume foods from a wide variety of foods and to consider those five main food groups. But I'm saying that you don't need to do it absolutely every single day you need to to consider the the context of your your sporting situation and how that fits in for you on on certain days yeah yeah and the classic one i see is the the person who's trying to meet all their protein needs the day before a race you know so common and then when you suggest that you don't and you actually try and minimize the protein when you're carb loading they sort of get really anxious like oh how can i not get my protein requirements yeah 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 i hear you on that one hear you on that one yeah yeah so hopefully we've helped answer that listener the question i'm sure we'll get told if we haven't helped answer it or if there's some other ones perhaps that we've we've missed yeah yeah if there's any others that people can think of that you, you think we've missed here feel free to DM us on social media. We'd love to hear other examples and we might mention them on next week's podcast. So yeah, you can hit us up at The Long Munch on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. We'd love to hear other thoughts you you have or other sort of general bits of dietary advice that you think, oh, is this maybe not appropriate for, you know, doing a lot of running, cycling and triathlon? Yeah. Yep. And our next episode out? Yeah, yeah. So episode 64B, so the same topic again. 
what nutrition advice for the general population doesn't apply to athletes. We're still waiting actually to confirm the guests. We're talking to someone at the moment, so we're just waiting to confirm their availability. But we will have a guest athlete to to talk about this topic and I guess where some of the myths and misconceptions and confusion can come in here when you're trying to juggle advice that's being thrown at you in terms of general population nutrition versus things that's coming at you from a sports nutrition angle specifically and, and I guess how they've kind of worked their way through that as well. And so just a, a reminder that if you do have a question that you would like answered on the podcast, please do contact us at the Long Munch on Instagram, Facebook or Twitter. And thank you to those people who have left ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you do listen on one of these platforms and have 30 seconds or so to spare, then we'd love it if you could leave a quick rating or a review. Those that leave a review on Apple Podcasts will go into a draw to win a copy of our ebook when it's published. And also remember that there's now 63 previous questions we've already answered. So if you're new to the podcast, welcome. You might like to check out the back catalogue to see if there's something there that will be helpful to you. And most podcast apps only show you the last few episodes. But if you click back, you'll see the rest of them going back to November 2020. If you would like to be notified every time a new episode is available, you can hit subscribe on the podcast app that you're listening to this on. And if your friends are asking about a particular nutrition issue for their training or racing and you've heard it on the podcast, you might like to even just pretend that you know all those answers and then just remember what we've said on the podcast and you will sound like an expert or you might like to refer them to our podcast and we'd love to have some more listeners and subscribers. But as always, Al, we will love and leave you and we will see you in a couple of weeks' time. we Will do. See you then, everyone. <laughs>